Hello, I'm Samia Ariane. I'm the founder of the Think Tank for Women in Business and Technology and the FemPeak platform, with the mission of raising women's socioeconomic status. In today's podcast, we're going to cover a very important topic, especially for those of you ladies out there that are thinking about building a scalable business. As you know, it's not possible to achieve this goal without raising investment but only a small fraction of total venture capital funds go to women. So how do we change this? Our guest today is Dr. Mitzi Krakover, Principal and Senior Consultant at SSB Solutions and a Femtech Angel Investor. And she's going to talk about some of the challenges facing female entrepreneurs and how to overcome them. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Mitzi Krakover. Our last conference um, on the subject of femtech was the lowest attendance, attendance rate. Right. Um, of course, there was a little glitch with our uh, technology, which we talked about. Even looking back at the views, because I can see people watch it afterwards, and looking at the views and the feedback that I've had, it seems as if um, a lot of people didn't know enough about the topic. So actually, in the first few weeks of releasing the news about this uh, conference, I noticed immediately that people weren't reacting to the word femtech. So I changed it to women's health technology. But still, just putting the word women's health and technology together, it seemed like I was losing people. But as I mentioned to you, ironically, I feel that technology is a missing part, um, a missing part of the puzzle when it comes to closing the gap in our understanding of female biology. Um, so I'd love to hear your views on this, especially as somebody who has invested in and, and you know, has had a lot of thinking about the concept of femtech uh, or female health technology and why you think that's important and what can we do to raise awareness? Um, because I think we need to get women interested in it until women get interested in it we are not gonna be able to make a change. And there are so many things with regards to women's health and women's biology that we still don't understand. That is so true. Um, so I'd like to just start with the definition of women's health. I, you know, it's really interesting. I started this journey about 25 years ago and remember when um, women's health were not, was not one word <laughs> or, or one phrase. What we've come to know and understand is that women's health conditions can be put into three buckets. One is those uh, diseases or conditions that manifest differently in women, or perhaps so they're experienced differently, they may need to be diagnosed differently or even treated differently. The best example is heart disease, number one killer of women. Yet women don't come in with that classic hand on their heart sign, the Claudia Levine sign saying, I've got crushing chest pain. They may have a little bit of sweating or jaw pain or arm pain or they're tired. And so we need to know that. We also need to know that you have to diagnose them differently. You need an imaging test along with the stress test, for example. Alcohol use is also another um, example. We metabolize alcohol differently. So our use uh, profile is different than men's. That's one bucket. The second bucket are those diseases or conditions that manifest predominantly in women. So autoimmune diseases like thyroid disease, uh, 
lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoporosis. 80% of people with osteoporosis are women. Doesn't mean that men don't get it, but predominantly women. And then those things that manifest almost exclusively in women. Certainly the reproductive health cancers, such as ovarian cancer, uh, obviously pregnancy, menopause, and, and so forth. There's so much more to women's health than that, but if you wanna just focus on those conditions, those are the three buckets. So we look at that. Then we say, okay, so, so what do we do with that information? And why isn't there more information? Well, the simple answer is that there hasn't been enough research. And because there hasn't been enough research, there hasn't been enough education of medical professionals specifically. When I was in medical school, big physiology book at the very end was women's health or women's physiology. And as you know, at the end of a semester, sometimes you don't get to the end, right, of the textbook. So uh, it kind of shows you where we are with that. Um, I'm hoping that those books are, are much different now. But what we do need to do is increase the amount of research. We know that it wasn't until 1994 that the NIH mandated that we had to have adequate representation of not only women, but underrepresented populations. Great, that's wonderful. But the bad news is that a study in 2015 looked at some of those kinds of things that they wanted to um, look at in terms of differences, and there wasn't much difference in what was reported after 1994 as before. Even with that mandate, we still have a lot of you know things to, to do. So we have a lack of information, a lack of information that can be put into play in our with our medical professionals. So that's the bad news. Good news, your point about technology. Healthcare and, and health in general is being impacted every day on new discoveries, new, ch new changes in digital health, new changes in biosciences and, and discoveries. And that has certainly affected women and women's health. So you're looking at, say, the technology of biomarkers, those things that can help us maybe diagnose things like endometriosis, hopefully, in the future, um, that can show us if we're having any um, gains in osteoporosis uh, with treatment. Looking at the microbiome in terms of issues like interstitial cystitis that women have been told is all in their head, but we know very significantly that it's a real thing. As more discoveries are made, that will impact on women's health. Our challenge, right, is to make sure that those discoveries are focused in the women's health space. And I think that's where I'm seeing uh, really, again, very hopeful kinds of um, activities happening. One is certainly having more female researchers or researchers interested in women's health and getting the funding. But even at the private level, having more funding in women's health companies um, women are fi literally finding their pain points, you know, using technology to deal with them and then providing that as solutions for others. There are organizations like the Society for Women's Health Research that is focused on women's health research, the Black Women's Health Imperative that is focused on issues of black women's health, specifically and especially maternal mortality in this country that is the worst of any of the developed countries, and especially in that population. Um, they're also focusing their efforts on fibroids and endometriosis, which also affects uh, the, the black women uh, more disproportionately. There are communities 
um, coming up. If you have interstitial cystitis, you can find information on the internet with people that are dealing with this. So there's more pathways now. It's going to be technology, but it's going to be those things around the technology to elevate that technology so that it's being used and being developed and being discovered. There is so much that is being done, but it feels like it's still so little in comparison to where it should be. I remember once I was talking to somebody on, an, on a date and I was explaining <laughs> what I do and, and what I'm working on with this. And the person was like, why do you make life so complex? And I said, well, because women are complex, like, you know, the, uh, you know, we have all these different facets of biological and, and uh, mental things that are different, right? And he said, you know what, it's like, and I gave him a, the, a simple example. I gave him an example of when I go on a, as a filmmaker, sometimes when I go on a, a construction building, if I'm filming, a, a, you know, a construction for, for a client, they give us the kind of clothing that they give us, you know, the, the protection. It's basically uh, the same as men. It's just a smaller size. And I, I gave him this as an example. I said, like, that's a hazard because I'm being given the same clothing. And he said, that's because women's sizes are so much more complex. With men, it's simple. It's like they just get bigger, bigger, or, or smaller, smaller. Whereas women are so much more complex. And I said, just because we are more complex doesn't mean that you have to give up because we are 54% or 52% of the, the planet. So if you are thinking that way with regards to PPE, imagine then what happens when you're talking about health which is a far more complex thing, right? I wonder if there's always been this feeling of it's just too complex. Let's just treat them as like smaller men. I am smiling because you have so hit the nail on the head and that was a beautiful you know, way of illustrating it because we're not just little men, right? And that's you know, part of the challenge and part of the reason for a lack of research on women's issues or that they were basically, again, were still being treated um, based on the research that was done on the 70 kilogram white male, right? Um, because they're easier. <laughs> they're, they don't have these cycles that change. They don't have unborn babies to protect. So you wanna, you know, again, so some of it is protective. Some of it is just, it's more expensive. The more variables that you have, the more expensive that research is. There's all sorts of reasons, but you're right. What we're finding when we do look is that we know that we have not treated women adequately because of the lack of information. And I think, that, again, the, the best example of that is heart disease. Even what we look for when a woman comes into the ER, there are many times not, we don't think of an older, frail woman having, uh, or even maybe a, a woman my age, um, coming in with heart disease. So we think that it's upset stomach or something like that. And that's precious time. If that's not at the top of someone's, what we call differential diagnosis, that we're losing if that woman really is having a heart attack or having angina or you know oxygen's not getting to their heart. And we've seen that. And women don't do as well um, in the hospital um, when they suffer from heart disease. And I think we're also seeing the effects of implicit bias on people of color as well. It's a form of racism, but it's also a form of lack of knowledge that we're, again, keep putting on our hat that says this is what it should look like when 
it was just it should look like that in a 70 kilogram white male not necessarily in a 60 year old white woman or a 25 year old black man exactly so the lesson here is women are not just smaller men <laughs> and, and we oh. need to uh, we need to accept that there is this complexity i think the only solution is getting more women into these fields because the example i gave you with the security right when i tell a man about that they're like seriously in it's a complex thing to navigate when you were at the conference you mentioned about the fact that we have a gap in terms of research and leadership and funding this is so complex i mean i don't know where you would even start it's like a chicken and the egg uh, situation. I remember I was talking to one of our panelists uh, from the first conference and she's in the film industry and she was telling me that she has the same issue in terms of getting funding for female uh, filmmakers. She said that I went to somebody to get advice about funding and they told her to go and take part in some competition that was like for five thousand pounds or dollars or something and she was like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm talking about millions here, you know, like building big projects. And by the same token, I think same thing happens with women wanting to get funding uh, for research for these types of things. It, it almost feels like you have to work much harder to prove yourself. I think that affects the, the ability for women to be able to raise funds. So what has your observation been? Because you can't do research if you don't have funding and That's then exactly right. and then we talk about leadership right leadership partly comes from gaining the confidence through attaining success if you are not able to raise funds to be able to show traction you know it's a feedback loop right so some people like me are a little bit crazy they're like you know i started with absolutely nothing you know i came to this country with one suitcase and i was like you know if you see a picture of where i grew up you would never believe where i am now i didn't have anything to lose even if i lose everything i just go back to where i was right so so i was like i don't i didn't have anything to lose right and I chose not to have children so I can take these risks. If I had kids, I wouldn't have been able maybe to take these risks. But you can't expect everybody to be like that, right? And we need to provide more opportunities for women to feel confidence, to take the risk, to go in, to do the, you know, to get the funding, to fail. If you look at what men have done throughout history, yes, they have achieved so much in terms of science and technology, but they've also had the worst wars, right? They've, they've also created the most chaos. And it just, it almost goes hand in hand. You need to be able, I look at my own life, you know, so I've, there's been so much destruction, so much chaos, but, on, but on, on the whole, there's also been so much success. And I just feel like we are not giving women the wings to fly when it comes to these things. So where do we even start? You know, we say, yeah, let's do these courses and these workshops for leadership. Yes, women leadership. But if they can't raise funds, where do we even start? So I don't quite have the answer. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear what you think. Not sure I have all the answers either. But um, if we're looking at women entrepreneurs, I think that's what you're, you're specifically talking about. 
You're exactly right. It's, uh, it is a vicious cycle um, with respect to, it's really a funding gap and a leadership gap. So what's been really great for me personally is to find an organization such as Golden Seeds, which is an angel organization that focuses on funding women-led companies. So they could be founders or they're in the C-suite. Um, and we are happy to have, you know, again, diverse leadership, if you will, um, men and women and, and, and so forth. Um, because women, and this was started 15 years ago, because women were not getting the kind of funding that men were. And even now, 4% of VC goes to women, whereas there's like 28%, don't quote me on those specific numbers, but a re, you know, bottom line is that it's totally underrepresented as to the amount of women that are actually starting companies. And we, you know, again, there's so many reasons why. And now there are other organizations such as Golden Seeds that are focusing on women-led companies. Springboard is another example, and Springboard, um, I'm on the, the one of their um, executive teams specifically in women's health because they have focused specifically on women's health right now. And so that's going to be a huge boon to, I think, women's health companies and because the predominant uh, women's health founders are women, um, you know, that will be very helpful. I think we're on the right track. I still think that there's a challenge, especially for women who are doing women's health because it's because you're also again uh, whereas you're getting a growth of women I believe in angel not as much in VC and not as much certainly in PE so what's happening is that these women who are now having a company that are ready to go to the next step are finding themselves in front of boards um, and VCs of you know rooms of men and so while they may be very comfortable talking about a vagina or a cervix or menstruation or whatever those men may not be. And even though they may, you know, again, they may not understand, they may not be comfortable. And so it's a harder conversation. And it's also a harder way to say, this really is needed. You know, I think that, again, there's misconceptions like, you know, periods hurt. Well, they don't have to hurt and they don't have to hurt that badly, <laughs> you know. Um, I think that getting more women into VC and you're seeing VC funds also that are being developed by women, including women of color, focusing on funding women. So I think that that will help. Um, there's also incubators and accelerators now that are from some of the larger organizations. Um, I believe JP Morgan are focusing on certain underrepresented groups so that they can help them. So that's the leadership piece that will definitely work with the funding. And I think we also talked about the fact that success is what at the end of the day, an investor just wants to get their money and some and, and more, right? So the more success that we can show in these areas, as you said, 50 plus percent of the entire world are women. We make 75% of the healthcare decisions. We are the ones who use 75%. We're more likely to use digital health than men are, believe it or not. The market is there. The issues are there. It's, it's, there's still obstacles, but we're I think we're making progress and we need to make more progress faster so that we have um, these solutions for women. So the way I see it, it sounds like we need a few different ways of tackling this. Part of that to me as a marketing person, you know, I run a marketing agency, is the marketing story to show the success 
and to change the narrative of the way that we talk about women's health. At the conference, uh, I, I'm not sure if you saw the part two speakers mm -hmm. and where you were. So there was a, a girl, Jackie, that I'm going to uh, interview as well. And she mentioned that she's campaigning for uh, the fact that, for example, on Facebook, they can advertise about um, penile implants and or again don't quote me on that i can't remember exactly but some something no, to do with loads of things that to do with men's genitals that are okay to talk about but when it comes to women's that you they can't can talk it. about right i had an experience when i was at um, humana as vice president of women's health and i was writing articles on women's health and i was always searching for you know different body parts and um, i got firewalls and, you know, finally had to talk to the IT folks. You know, they were just laughing because, you know, they, they, they see everything that everybody searches. And, you know, they had to lift the firewall for me so that uh, I could, uh, you know, do, literally do my work. This is, is certainly more serious because I, again, was able to deal with it. But the fact that there are barriers to, to that is, you know, my kids um, have grown up understanding what ED is. You know, and um, you know they can't buy birth control over the the counter. We definitely have some very different uh, issues. So yeah, so part of that is about changing the narrative of society in terms of the way that we talk about these things, so that the male VCs are going to be more comfortable sitting in a room with a woman coming in and talking about issues around menopause and period and and all that stuff that's part of that so so to change the mindset of of the men the second thing is to have more women vcs and that's going to be that's going to be a difficult one i mean everything is difficult nothing is easy right. uh, but it's going to be a difficult one because women have only a fraction of the wealth uh, the amount of wealth that women generate so there is mm -hmm. a smaller pot of money and they are also more risk averse from at least my experience of you know, trying to get my friends to invest in different things and then, you know, talk, sure. discussing them. So that's a reality. So, so there's so much work to be done on the education front, on the um, changing culture front, and on getting women to have more money, to generate more money. You know, one of the things that's been quite interesting when I started this movement, people uh, sent me messages saying, oh, this is great that you're creating a nonprofit. I was like, I never said it was a nonprofit. <laughs> Why do you think that, right? I said that the conferences are always gonna be free because that's the gateway to getting the conversation started, right? So I'm gonna put in all of the work I'm doing, all of this, you know, I've already spent about 40,000 pounds on this since July. I've hired more people. If you look at the list of, you know, every day there's a new person being added to our, uh, you know, to our uh, team. Just, just two people are working just on this podcast. Two wow. people are literally only focused on the podcast in mm -hmm. the middle of this pandemic as nobody is investing, spending money on anything. I need to make that sustainable and I need to make that successful in order to be able to make an impact. If this was a nonprofit, if, if everything women do is going to be nonprofit, we are not gonna make a change. You know, we are always gonna be like hand to mouth and waiting for somebody to, to 
hand us some opportunity. I want to change that. Somi, you are just really, again, on point. And, you know, it's not only just a nice to have, it's what we have to, when you talk about messaging, it's good business. If you keep your employees healthy, they're more productive, they show up, they are a better employee. Um, what's really interesting, actually in the UK, there's an increasing um, awareness that menopause is a significant issue in a lot of, for a lot of employers, um, for their employees. And there are actually menopause programs at the work site, which I think is fabulous. When I was at Humana, we developed a worksite lactation program so women could come back, be able to lactate, and continue their work um, as well so that they felt supported and they were able to, to do that. So it's good business. And so to the extent, going back to also you, I, I know that data is important. We can show better outcomes, right? We can show saving costs in the long run and improving health. Um, we had an NICU program that identified high-risk OB patients and then did case management and actually reduced the number of NICU admissions that we had. And because that was a good thing, it wasn't because we reduced those admissions because they didn't need them, not because we were taking them away from people that needed them. And there's so much that we can do if we do a heart disease program for women. That again, is the number one killer. We're also seeing, and I would suggest this to uh, entrepreneurs listening, especially in healthcare, there's a number of customers that you have. You can have a, the individual as a customer, and you certainly need to engage that individual, but you may have the, again, the UK is a little bit different, but you have, may have an insurer that wants to make a difference, or you might have an employer that's willing to make a difference, but you have to have the data that shows that what they're, you're doing is gonna make a significant difference. There's a lot of opportunities, but you have to, to know that you have to make the case for them, and as, as you said, really uh, manage the message. Exactly, and I think there's not been anything, like my ambition with this is so huge, and I'm gonna you know, dedicate my life to it because I feel like we really need an infrastructure for, tackling all of these and i feel like i have the energy you know to to actually start a conversation ignite something hopefully and maybe try and for example speaking of insurance i've been thinking a lot about this that we need a specific health insurance for women that also ta takes into account things like breastfeeding and like we really need a very different kind of insurance not just with regards to breast cancer and you know all these different types of mm -hmm. worst case scenarios but all the things you know what i want like i'm thinking about and this is what i'm doing for my own health i haven't had even a cold in three or four years now you know Not uh, <laughs> yeah i know and and you know uh, but i i take about 40 50 supplements a day you know i exercise i check out how much i sleep I, you know i don't watch any kind of uh, I have no entertainment. I don't watch Netflix, no film. I work 14, 15 hours a day. And so even if I'm on a treadmill, I'm listening to a podcast of somebody that I'm going to interview or, you know, I'm going to work on mm -hmm. something. So, so I work incredible hours and I still manage to, so far, uh, I've managed to not get ill. Now, I'm not saying I'm not going to, but I always think about 
we need to change the concept of insurance. And especially when I think about women's health, we need a kind of insurance that's focused on prevention and understanding women's issues. For example, I have ADHD. Um, just because I have a diagnosed ADHD, and no insurance accepts to cover anything to do with mental health for me. If something else came up that affected me on a mental health level, I would have no protection. This is such a backward way. Actually, through the supplementation and the, and the work that I'm doing to myself, with myself, you know, I've been able to decrease my ADHD medication to a minimum. And instead, I'm taking a lot of supplements to help me focus and you know, exercise, uh, meditation, all those things. But a really good insurance plan or insurance company would really look out for you. They would want you to not be ill. Yes, to some degree, say something like virgin, uh, vitality. They all have these uh, superficial levels of uh, you get a cinema ticket if, you do, if you've done this amount of exercise. Mm -hmm. I think it, we now have the data. We now have like with, with this ring I'm wearing with, with my Apple Watch. You know, we now have and we can create new ways of like, I'm, I'm so surprised when Apple Watch came out that they were talking about all these incredible things that it did. There was not a single mention of women's cycle and period, how the Apple Watch could help with that, right? So I, I would totally buy if somebody created something that was specifically for women that would help you understand your body better. It could help you with understanding uh, you know, your cycle. I know that there are, we are having more mm -hmm. of those, but, but then integrating that with the way that we think about insurance for women and insurance that takes into account that you might want to have children, that you might want to have, or you may choose not to have children and you may have to take measures around that. So I really think there is a huge amount of opportunity when you think about the level of opportunity there is, the market is huge, you know, and, and we don't have anything that's integrated that brings all of this together. I don't know, it's a huge dream, but I think it's an achievable one. If we get enough women to take an interest, you know, not be a passive observer, like the pill is a great example. I did a, a podcast interview with my GP uh, and nutrition therapist, and she said, the pill, the issue is that, I, I was telling her, does it feel like the market is just content with what we have? She said that women are content. They are not questioning. They're not, they, you know, the pill has got so many side effects. It's just not good enough. So we've been going through this over and over and she doesn't want me to take it because I've got a very difficult PMS uh, mm -hmm. problem and I wanted to take it to battle that. And she, she just doesn't want me to take it because she says it's got so many other side effects. And, I, and she was like, five years time, you're going to come to me. Oh, I have breast cancer now. You know? And then they're going to take you off hormones, all, all of hormones. So she doesn't want me to take that. I think there is a real opportunity here to create businesses. Wonder from your point of view, if we were going to start somewhere, where would it be? Where would be like the most uh, reasonable, probabilistically more likely to generate an outcome that will create more confidence um, in women building businesses around mm -hmm. women's health. Well, let me answer what I think makes, you know, if, if I'm not answering the question, you can call me on it. But I think that your idea about 
kind of more of a holistic approach to women's health, I would suggest that everybody needs a more holistic approach, right? And, and that, but different populations need a, you know, different a different set of focuses. If you What we have now, and again, it sounds like there's some similarities between the UK and the US, but the US, as you know, is notorious for um, our lack of an organized healthcare system. So the insurers have come, have gone really from, again, there was a, this idea that they were denying everything to managing population health. And so that if you can make a difference in someone with diabetes or with heart disease or whatever their chronic illness is, you will certainly reduce healthcare costs, you will improve quality of life. It's what we call the, the triple aim, the right care, the right time, the right place, um, and the right cost, so it's a quadruple. I think every physician knew before this term was coined that social determinants of health are those things that are not necessarily things that you diagnose or treat, but they're those things that impact on the health of an individual. Transportation, safety, food and nutrition, obviously poverty, education, uh, access to care, all of those things impact on somebody's health. Now though, the good news is that there are programs that are either holding providers accountable, called accountable care programs, so that they have to manage their patients. Either they will manage them with a certain amount of money, so the incentive is for them to take care of some of those things to get achieve better health, or they'll get a bonus because they do achieve those kinds of things. So rather than a fee for service, and so there's also programs within Medicaid specifically, which is for the underserved and more impoverished, focusing on reimbursing physicians for focusing on some of those social determinants of health. Also, a move to integrate behavioral health with physical health. And there's even a company, um, Magellan just purchased a company called Bayless Healthcare that does just that. There's a lot of things going on kind of in the incremental space that I think are moving in the right direction. I do believe that what's going to increase more adoption is going to be, again, that outcomes data. And so what we're seeing is that, and again, going back to the use of technology, especially during COVID, we're seeing a lot more home-based healthcare with remote monitoring, with notifications and reminders for the patient as well as integration into the electronic health record for the provider and the insurer. So to the extent that those companies continue to grow, we'll have more of a seamless kind of healthcare. Um, it's been said that our healthcare system is really the sick care system, that if you're entering into it, um, you're already ill. So as you said, we wanna prevent that. We wanna have more of a health span, uh, if you will. And so the way to do that are to use those activities that we know will make an impact, will delay you know, sickness and illness, and reduce what we consider morbidity. You're exactly right, and to the extent that, and we're seeing a number of health companies in this space, and COVID has actually accelerated a great deal of it because of the use of telehealth, because of the use of remote monitoring. A really great example in women's health is remote monitoring of pregnant women. Um, who may be having problems that, again, uh, don't want to go or can't go to the, the doctor, but they can 
again, identify issues and the doctor can be notified um, directly. It's not as fast as anybody wants, but we're seeing, um, we're seeing movement in that area. Definitely, but there are specific costs that we have as women that men don't have. So <laughs> yes. we generally, as a, as a womankind, we earn less money and we have costs that men don't have. One of those being a lot of my friends now at our age, you know, they are trying to, they are freezing their eggs and it's very expensive. Uh, one of my friends just spent 6,000 pounds to freeze her eggs. That's a lot of money for, I mean, she's lucky that she has her own business, but for somebody, if, she, if you were on a, you know, normal nine to five job, you, you like that could be a lot of, a lot of money. It's a big setback. Um, and then the other thing is then when they do have children, there are things like they might need um, reconstructive surgery. Uh, not everybody is lucky to uh, come out of um, pregnancy, you know, untouched and you know, a lot of them do. And the insurance companies don't cover that. So I have talked to a lot of surgeons and they're saying that generally speaking, it's not something that's covered. And that's really unfair and unfair for the women, you know, because then th this person has to live with a part of their body not looking quite the same way as, uh, you know, and, and it affects their everything, their mental health, their physical, you know, uh, the feeling of being attractive, you know, to their partner, to any future partners, all that stuff. I see it all the time. I see it in my clients. I see it in my friends. I don't know what the solution is, but I, to me, this is unnecessary suffering. If I was going to go really one step, I have slightly out there views with regards to these things. I think that pregnancy should happen outside of the woman's body. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole other, you know, I'm like, you know, there's like, I, I, just, I just think it would be nice to have the option, right? You know, if you could have that option, not have to do it, you know, so that you wouldn't have to go through so much pain. I would certainly have kids if I didn't have to do that. You know? But that's a maybe, you know, next century. For where we are right now, what are some of the solutions in terms of somebody wanted to build businesses around these things to help women? I think it's just not good enough that women are having to go through all that pain to have the baby. And then afterwards, they are not going to uh, be able to cover the cost of reconstructing their body. In many cases, it's beyond just cosmetics. It's also a lot of complications from what I understand talking to surgeons. It, it, it's a lot of other complications that complicate their life in so many ways, their daily life. So are there ways, are there business opportunities around these kinds of more complex women's health issues? On the examples that you just gave, for example, there is um, there are companies such as Progeny um, that actually is one of the bigger um, women's health uh, companies that had a, a significant funding, um, and I believe Exit, and working with employers and to structure fertility benefits and infertility benefits as well. As you probably saw, there are some tech companies that are actually providing those services as a benefit, as a way to lure talent. So for those women that are, are picking employers, maybe that would be a part of it. There's so much 
and there's so many things that we'd love to have. You know, the challenges with, again, the healthcare system is that there really are limited resources, and we're gonna see that in really frank terms after this pandemic, or even now, we're seeing it now. We're, we're rationing care as we speak. We're rationing oxygen, we're rationing um, ICU beds. Uh, we're even rationing whether or not people come to the, the ER. And I think that after this is over, there's going to be economic fallout as well um, with respect to healthcare. And so we're really gonna have to look at our healthcare dollars even uh, more. That's the insurance piece of it to a certain extent and looking at those resources and where those resources ideally should go to. But there are, uh, like I said, um, I think innovative ways for, and this may be where the employer or even special products that insurers want to provide for those that um, can make it them um, available uh, in order to help with some of these things. I think that the other pieces such as uh, lactation help or mental health services, things that weren't necessarily covered are now being rolled in to services or women are able to avail themselves at a, a less costly price. And I think that's also the real promise of technology is that the cost of getting services potentially can go down just because the scale is so wide. So do you think, speaking of the, uh, the pandemic, do you think that COVID-19 may be a setback in terms of femtech funding because people's attention has been going more in that direction? So do you think that it's making it harder for maybe women who have been on the right track to get funding? Um, it certainly seems that way. Mm -hmm in some of the, like for example, in companies that I'm working with, with our clients, it does seem like it has slowed down that fundraising. Mm. Um, so I wonder whether COVID-19 is gonna make it harder for, for female-led uh, companies. You know, it's interesting, um, at least up until now though, it looks like the fourth quarter is going to dip. Specifically for women's health, the trajectory has been up that there's been more um, investment, not where it needs to be, but certainly um, growing. But it looks like there's a dip across healthcare in Q4. And that may just be because, again, of some of the things that we're talking about in terms of the impact of COVID, um, both on the economies and as well as on the healthcare system. With respect to before that, though, I'll give you an example in that Golden Seeds realized that we were gonna have, we didn't know what we were gonna have, right? So we thought that we would divide and conquer in that we would look at our portfolio companies and provide them any support that they might need during this time. But that we also recognized that there was going to be new opportunities, probably just because of the pandemic and may need to be expedited. And we developed a COVID-19 task force and I was uh, on that task force. And what we saw was uh, really not a significant reduction in our investors investing and or supporting our portfolio companies. And I've spoken to some VCs and I think that the numbers also bear that out that pretty much investment has continued on. Um, and then you're seeing a lot of consolidation right now, especially in the PE area. So I think that it may be that the challenges of COVID are more on an individual level in terms of if we, people are just starting out, 
um, and wanting to, you know, get the, that friends and family funding in order to, you know, jumpstart their company. But once they're, you know, have a, a, a product and they're and they're on their way, I think that there are, I don't think that there's significantly less support. The bottom line for any um, entrepreneur is that they have to have identified a problem that the market wants to solve. It's the number one reason why companies fail. And then they have to have a total market that's big enough to, you know, again, generate revenues. And then it has to be scalable. And then there has to be an exit plan. And so that would be my, you know, again, with respect to women's health and specifically, I think we're just scratching the surface. And I think that there's so many literal pain points in women's health. and every day you're finding a company that's addressing those, um, that I think that there's, that the pie's definitely big enough for everyone. Again, I don't want to say that it's Pollyanna and everything's fine, but I, I, I do think that we're just starting. And when you look at the, you know, there's a question, there hasn't been a lot of exits in women's health. We just started, <laughs> you know, one of the reasons I got into in angel investing and mentoring entrepreneurs is because I saw this as the next best way of impacting women's health on a real tangible um, scale. And what I'm seeing, you know, again, in terms of what's out there is really exciting from technologies and discoveries to services and products. And again, if, as long as entrepreneurs keep up with, you know, keep in mind what their, their trajectory uh, needs to be, I think that there'll be a market for it. There's also been, you talked about, I think a little bit about it, there's going to be a need for convergence and maybe even combinations of services. There's a lot to be um, done in this space that, uh, that we need, quite frankly. That's why I want to build a super platform to bring together lots of different, you know, lots sure. of different things from how you look at finance to how you look at insurance to how you look at mental health, all, all these things, you know, because, because as humans, we are complex. We, are, we have so many different facets. And I think women have the ability to see things in a holistic way. Oh, absolutely. And they collaborate. And, they, and I think that's why women-led companies you know, do much better because they are willing to listen to others' ideas. They're willing to collaborate and willing to network and to support one another. And I would just really emphasize, encourage people to continue to do that. I have a couple of, if I could go back to a couple of things that you said, it just reminded me. With respect to insurance, I mean, there's some basic issues. And the um, Affordable Care Act addressed some of those that were like, you know, I think people didn't realize that women were being charged more for healthcare insurance. That a pregnancy could be a pre-existing condition for which they don't necessarily, could not be covered for. That's the low-hanging fruit, right? Or that birth control pill, that birth control, I should say, and contraception wasn't necessarily being covered. So, you know, there's so many ways to look at this. And I would say that that also leads to a discussion about policy health policy impacts on women's health in a way that it doesn't impact on the general health of, of people, and uh, especially in the United States. Um, but you, you see it all over the world, right? Is it Venezuela that just passed acceptance of, a, of abortion? That's huge. We have to factor in policy and systemic issues uh, because if 
we don't, for example, pay for certain things through government-sponsored health care insurance, those things may not be available to women. That's right. But, you know, I mentioned to you in an email that um, I studied politics. I studied political mm -hmm. philosophy and transatlantic studies. And I was invited to America by the U.S. State Department in 2006. And I went to all the major think tanks. And, and when I came back, I decided to give up on politics because I felt, because, seriously, it, it had a, like the opposite effect. You know, I, was, I went to the... Uh, spoke to you know, people from Senate, conference, uh, Congress, you know, and um, Chicago Tribune, um, uh, American Enterprise Institute, Brookings, Brookings Institute, all those places. When I came back, I just felt that, you know, when I was in Iran, I obviously hated the government. That's why I can't go back, because if I go back, I'd probably be in jail. That's a dictatorship. It's going to be different in the West. But the problem is, I think the a political environment, just the bureaucracy of it, it's just so slow to make changes. I love speed. And I, I, and I just feel like these people are so, so slow and so inefficient, you know? Like, like they, they literally create new jobs out of their inefficiency. So I have a lot more hope in technology. And oh, yeah. on some level, maybe at my heart, I'm a bit of an anarchist. I just have very little... Uh, hope. I mean, you look at what's happening in America right now. It just feels like a kindergarten. What is going on there? Like two baby boomers. <laughs> Another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> two baby boomers are behaving like kindergarten children. Well, you know, and, and what you're saying, and I'm not suggesting that you go through, you know, what's being paid for or not being paid for, but a lot of people depend on that. Um, but also, if there are laws that are not protecting women or are banning, you know, healthcare options, then no disruption is going to help that because it's going to be impossible to get to them. But I absolutely, I, you know, that's why I think that right now is very hopeful for women and for women's health. I think I'm a, an example of someone who didn't really go down the beaten path and, you know, very, and with some luck and, and um, opportunities, you know, really kind of charted away for myself. I think now more than ever, there are so many different paths um, that are available to women. Um, and I tell my kids that, you know, you don't have to, you know, those traditional pathways are great, but there's other ways to get to them. The use of technology, again, has helped with that. And so I would just encourage anybody in this space to, again, not think that they have to wait for someone else, that they can, um, you know, as long as they have all the tools that they need. You know, honestly, it's become so, I'm, I say easy, not easy, it's definitely not easy. I'm working incredible hours, but it's become possible like literally, I've sat here with like seven computers, you know, and each of them has got a ton of different programs running on them. And I mean, what, you know, because the girls, usually I have two of the girls usually come in here. And then Lola, I'm just sponsoring to bring her back uh, to the UK. So I just spent a lot of money on Lola. She's, I was like, I told Lola, you're going to be, so basically I'm spending this money for the next five years. You're mine. <laughs> you're not going anywhere. <laughs> you know? I love her. She's amazing. You know, she's been working with me for over two years now and she's like, yeah, she's incredible. So I've got this team 
most of them working remotely and I'm sitting here. Uh, so usually the girls, two of them come in here, but now we are in tier four, so they're working from home. It's just literally me with seven computers and we've created this incredible, within six months, you know, we've built a huge, uh, you know, I just uh, secured a podcast interview with like one of the most legendary people. She's 81 years old, you know, an AI historian. You know, it's just like, I can't believe that I can just sit here. You know, it's like I've just secured talks with people from MIT and Stanford. And it's just incredible that you can do that. I guess my point is there's so much more we can do now because of technology. You know, and, and especially in health, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I'm I'm excited. You know, I th I think about these lactation programs where if in the middle of the night, if you're having a problem, you can go on and you can show somebody, and they can talk you through it. You know, I'm so jealous because I remember my own you know experience. You know, again, you can access a doctor, you can access a therapist. You you know, again, it's not they're not certainly perfect, and but the whole idea, the whole idea that you and I are speaking and you're in a different country, the fact that you had that beautiful conference with people from all over the world. I've not networked, you know, again, um, ever um, until now. So, you know, those are the silver linings and I, you know, I hope and I, I think that people will take advantage of those kinds of things. Um, what's been really fabulous is to learn about different countries and how they're dealing with some of these issues and um, it really puts things in perspective as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, you mentioned that as there are more successful exits, then we are, uh, we are gonna have more confidence and the VCs are gonna have more confidence in female-led companies. So I've been thinking about this crazy idea of, I mentioned to you in an email, I've been thinking about this concept of popularizing female-led products and services in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, just, just like, like we say fair trade, maybe we could have femme trade, I don't know, like some kind of term that we could stick on something that would say, that would certify that this company has women in their top tier. And then we could have like different stickers, different levels, like this company is founded by a woman, founded and you know and, and the CEO is a woman so let's say for example I want to buy a TV Samsung right and I have a choice between Samsung and another TV and that one has the sticker of it's designed by a woman mm -hmm. it's, it's created by a woman I would buy that one because I want to uh, just because right? I want to support like I said we need a few different ways of tackling this issue of you know getting more funding into the female pockets, right? Because it doesn't matter if it's not in fem, uh, in fem tech or in, not doesn't matter. We need more women to make more money so that they can invest more in female-led sure. mm -hmm. problems and, and uh, issues and uh, business opportunities, all that stuff. It also is like a way of creating new role models. Like, you know, if I want to buy a camera, if my Lumix camera, if I, if I it had that thing on it that said, this was designed by a woman, I would be like, a bit a little bit more like a bit more proud to buy it you know mm -hmm. like i would be a little bit more like i feel like it's just exactly the same as i buy fair trade bananas or fair trade you know coffee so i want to buy something that's made by women mm -hmm. what do you think of that They're just i just i'm just thinking like how can 
I don't know, like maybe I should go and study the history of fair trade, see how those things came about, how people created those things. But if you have any insights. You know, I, I, there, have been some, there have been some sites and, um, that have focused on women uh, and, and products, um, as well as people of color as well. I think it's, it's certainly a marketing opportunity. I also think that when a product is superior and people don't know where if it was woman backed or not to be able to say you know what that is to, to basically say you know that 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 thing that you really like well that the story behind it is, is a woman so I think that you could do both um, and again the the importance is is to to making sure that those products are are good and the services are good there there's a market for them and that uh, that people know about them the other piece that's not necessarily entrepreneurial, but is to also look at corporate boards of those larger companies. And there is um, a, an initiative that has focused on making sure that large corporate boards have um, appropriate representation of women and basically calling them out when they don't. And I think that that's important because it gets back to our conversation about leadership, right? that if you don't have people in the board that are um, representative of their own customers even, or their employees, then you're not going to have, and it's been shown, you're not going to have a successful company. And so that's another way to move the needle, if you will, because those big companies buy those smaller companies. And we talk about exits. So someone you know, in a company that knows um, or has an appreciation for maybe some of those companies that women are um, uh, creating. It, it all interconnects and it all trickles down and up. I'm genuinely going to um, study like how these things are formed, but I really feel like this could be a very powerful way of adding confidence to women, you know, mm -hmm. because one of the things that comes to my attention constantly when I speak to investors is that women are less confident. It's really interesting because women, um, whether it be entrepreneurs or academics, um, across the board, we're always about, you know, there's been this um, example given that someone will say, you know, who can do this? And without even knowing it, a man or a boy might raise their hand, but a woman or a girl is thinking, okay, I, you know, do I have that skill? Do I have that skill? And they may they say, oh, I don't have those skills and we'll hold back, right? And we are very much more programmed to dotting our I's and crossing our T's before we get to the next, until we put ourselves out there. And so I think that we need to recognize that in ourselves and, and, and change that. There's also been, of course, the, the study and the example given when a woman pitches, investors more likely to uh, provide or to give a question more about the prevention like what happens if you fail as opposed to a man who they might ask okay so what are you going to do when you need to scale up more of a promotion question and it's also been found that the woman that answers the promotion question even if it wasn't asked for them rather than the prevention question actually gets more funding so there are things that we can do if we know um, about it you know if I look at academia for example great example of women were not applying for patents and significantly. Washington University, actually my um, alma mater, I'll be proud to say, uh, and they published the study, did an intervention where they educated their female 
faculty about patents and, and so forth, and they saw a significant, a really big increase in the number of filings after that program. And then they continued that program to not only include education, but access to tech transfer services and, and having a community. And they also have a program called Equalize, where they send out a request for proposal from, from academic women who have a commercializable research. Those women, uh, finalists are chosen. Those finalists are paired with mentors who will mentor them through a pitch and, 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 and what they need to do. And then those finalists present at the end at this conference. And I had the honor of being one of the um, judges. And amazing women, amazing research. And we actually are looking at one of the companies now to potentially invest in, and if not um, invest right now, help them along. Because again, um, and, that, and what was really um, important for me is I was told that they didn't have other resources. They didn't know where to get these other resources. And so that's the other thing that we really need to do. And there are collaborations going on, especially in the femtech world, where entrepreneurs are connecting with other entrepreneurs. They're connecting them with other resources, with incubators, with funders. And I would also suggest that in the technology and the science areas, what's really been a positive in terms of our, our government is that the NIH is giving SBIR grants to promising commercializable scientific companies. And, and they're significant. They're not the 5,000s. They're, they're the 75 and, and, and more. Those are the promising things going on. So, but I have um, a question. You mentioned um, that women are generally, they take more time to prepare and, and cross the, what was the, cross the dots? Cross the T's uh, and dot the I's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always say it yeah. the opposite way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. Um, I was speaking to people who was on the panel before the one that you were on. She's um, a professor, Alessandra Kasser. She's uh, an economist. And she said that there are more variations within the sexes than between the sexes. She said, we usually think men are generally like that, women are generally like that. Uh, I'm definitely an embodiment of that because I'm one of those people that I am always like raising my hand before I'm ready. I'm not afraid of failing. I'm not afraid of this thing many times, even on dates where people have said to me, you, even my ex used to say, you must have been a blo bloke in another life, you know? <laughs> uh, so I don't feel in any way like a bloke, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I feel really like feminine, like sure. a woman, all that stuff. But we are having stereotypes whether we are having stereotypes that are becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. She said to me, even I can see the way that we treat our children, like, you know, and there was another panelist I talked to. She, she was like, I look at the way that when I, when my children are on a, in the playground, the way I treat my daughter and son is different. And then I remind myself that, look, I'm creating, you know, a, a bias here. Like I'm, I'm building that bias into her head um, by treating the two differently. It's just an uh, observation. I think there are more women like me that are willing to, to take those risks, but, but maybe uh, they are being pushed into not doing that. We are kind of like imagining it and then we're making it happen. You know, I've thought about that as well. I think obviously whenever you make a gross generalization, it's a gross generalization. We always say, 
know, like in population health, it's the population, but you have an N of one who may be very different, right? So uh, your comments are well taken. I think those generalizations are based on um, some of our cultural biases and some of our cultural activities. And some of them are learned. I mean, I'm not saying that they're innate. And one of the my favorite um, authors and um, is Deborah Tannen, who has done a lot of work on how people communicate, especially this, the difference in the genders, and especially and in different environments, whether it be in relationships or at the workplace. And if someone wants to access the Harvard is interested, Harvard Business Review. She wrote an article for it, which is just really was very helpful to me. And I think acknowledging and understanding some of the differences empowers you to make some changes. So for example, knowing that if you're going to get a specific question from a VC, that you know how to manage that to make it better for you. And I think that, you know, I remember in college we had assertiveness training, you know, so that we'd learn how to say no because, you know, if, and I took it because I knew that I had a propensity for, you know, being less assertive. So I think a lot of that can be learned, but I also think that there is usefulness in understanding the differences. One of the reasons I bring up Deborah Tannen is I had this light bulb moment when I read her because I was looking at why is it that women are so un, unsatisfied in the doctor's office? You know, why is it that, and I got some really key points from that. Um, and again, gross generalizations, but women are more likely to engage eye to eye. They want to know that you're listening, um, that if you're not doing that eye to eye, that you're distracted. So that made me change how I, did my consultations. I didn't sit there and write notes. I talked and I realized that that was probably part of the dissatisfaction with not only me but other physicians. And I realized that we are a very male medical model in that men, again, gross generalization, want the answers. Women are much more comfortable with process. I found that when I went through my process with men, my male patients, they didn't instill confidence in them and they just wanted the answer. But for women, it was really important for me to show them why I was thinking what I was thinking. And that instilled more confidence in me. So I do think that there, again, for whatever reason, there are differences. And that if we just acknowledge them, that we can also change them to our advantage, if you will. Of course. Yeah, no, of course there are. There's always going to be differences. You know, my point is only that we just have to be careful that we don't make these things a self-fulfilling sure. prophecy. Like for example, I was once sitting at a business breakfast meeting where, where it was at my club. I had invited everybody from a company that I have invested in. Most people in the room were men. There were a few women. But towards the end of the, even though it was essentially like this was my space, right? I raised you know a point towards the end and I, I spoke very loud and, you know, like not loud in a, in a, I mean, like very assertively, right? And all these people just, they all looked at me and they were like so surprised that I spoke. Um, I was probably the youngest person in the room, I think. You know, everybody was um, in their 40s and 50s. So it's the youngest person in the room. 
and and I, and and I'm like, why are they looking at me like that? So they were surprised that I made this point about what we were doing with the marketing, and and I was like, you know, in the end, we should really bear this in mind as well that this is the way. And or like for example, there's been times where I've been to the headquarter of Steinway Pianos, where you know one of our biggest clients is Steinway Pianos where I've been sitting in a room with the CEO of, you know, the, the European headquarters. And, and then I get up and go to the board and I'm explaining something. And people don't expect you to get up and go to the board. They just don't expect that, right? They're like, yeah, what's she doing? Like, what? She just got up. I bring in a little presentation. And then when I put the presentation, people usually expect you to be kind of sat there with your computer, with your mouse. And like, you know, no, I put that and then I get up and then go there. And I'm like, you know, expressing and, and people don't expect that. And I just think we need more people, more women to, to behave that way. So um, it's been uh, such an amazing, uh, I can talk to you forever. I'm going to ask you I one know, last question. Uh, yeah, <laughs> okay, no, it's, been, it's just so fascinating. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll ask you one last question. So you mentioned that female scientists need to learn how to translate their research to the market in order mm -hmm. to be able to develop viable businesses. But um, the issue is that there's no such educational programs. So I spoke to um, Sophie Bartsish, who is a, a plastic surgeon and she was talking to me about the fact that she was like you go through medical school but they teach you you know the craft of being a surgeon but nobody teaches you how to turn that into a business i think there's definitely again here here's a gap in the market for example sometimes in i'm in the operating room you know i'm in the theater and i'm holding a tool and I'm thinking if this tool, if it could be like changed a little bit, like if it could be designed slightly differently, like it would make my life so much easier, but I don't know even where to start from to go to get a patent to do, you know, de design. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's an opportunity for Fempeak and the movement we're building here to create programs that mm -hmm. teach female scientists, surgeons and all that, people in different fields, to think, how can you turn your idea into reality? You know, there's so many things that I don't know the answer to, and I don't even know where to start from. And as I'm finding those answers, it's costing me sometimes a lot of money where I make a mistake, I, I engage somebody that maybe is not the right person for that job, and then I figure out. But, but as I'm finding these, I'm thinking, okay, I need to share this knowledge with other people. And I wonder, there must be lots of things within the medical field, within the femtech space that maybe I don't know about. But, but how do we go about creating a space to teach female scientists things that are beyond just their craft, how to build businesses around what they know on a scientific level? For academics, the program that I just talked about um, with respect to um, tech transfer and having, and tech transfer, for those who don't know, is the area of a university that connect those scientists to commercial opportunities and helps them, again, file for the patents and, and help them on their, on their pathway to commercialization. A lot of that is because the university actually gets a, a piece of that, so it's, it's within everybody's best interest. Obviously, if you're already in academia, connecting with tech transfer, but also, again, I think that the WashU program is something that's very replicable and has shown to be uh, useful and impactful. 
you bring up a really interesting point about practicing professionals of any sort, right? How do you, especially if you're working with any kind of uh, device, and that could be more challenging. I would say that there are organizations such as SeedSpot that help uh, individuals learn how to, um, you know, commercialize their 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 companies and also how to pitch them and how to, you know, really structure a business. I think it's about networking as well. I, there's a lot of people that are doing these kinds of things and just to uh, really connect with those individuals. And there's also, uh, probably in most cities or uh, states, resources within them that are either focused on the entrepreneur or business sector and specifically biotech or tech in general. I know that in Arizona we have the AZ Tech Council and we also have the um, what's called BioAZ, which is basically the industry trade association for those. And so those would be resources. You may have to, again, go and, and kind of uh, seek out your own resources, uh, but those would be things that I would start out with and, and suggest. And I think that if you can become a clearinghouse for some of those things, that would be really useful. So I could go to these some of these resources. I need to go through them, and I may ask you for the spelling. I suppose we could go to those and say, can you come in and collaborate with us and create these workshops and, and programs, maybe content, like the, the tutorial I made about how to uh -huh. use the yeah, microphone, sure. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, like something that is like really simple and clear, spoken mm -hmm. in English, you know, not, not in too much jargon. Right, in, sure. You know. I think that would be great. That'd be really helpful. Yeah, because nobody has, uh, it's not the kind of thing that I see. I know that is quite, a niche market, but at the same time, it's a very important market. One other piece that's really important is understanding the regulatory pathways, especially for medical devices and therapeutics, and I know, and the differences between the two between countries. And so I would also use the patent offices and the regulatory agencies of the countries. Um, they sometimes have programs that are already there that you could probably connect with as well. Yeah, absolutely. But see, all of these, for me to go and do these things, I need a team. And sure. that requires funding and, you know, getting together. So that's why for people you know, listening, this is why we need to be able to, it needs to become sustainable so that we can invest mm -hmm. in these things, right? So it's right. like, if, if this was a nonprofit, then we would be waiting for somebody to donate, you know, to create this little sure. thing here, little thing there. Mm -hmm. but, but to build an infrastructure, we need to invest in our own womankind <laughs> you know, to, be able, to be able to do that. Sure. It's been great talking to you. Oh, um, you as Mitzi. well. Hopefully we'll get another chance to do so. I'm sure. I'm sure we will. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Mitzi Kirkover and found it as insightful as I did. If you like what we're doing here, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star review. You can also find the full video of these conversations on my YouTube channel. Oh, and connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Clubhouse. And finally, if you're not yet a member of Fempeak, head over to fempeak.ai and register to join a community that actively supports women. Thank you.